Fodor and Piatelli's, 2011, book What Darwin Got Wrong has been savagely reviewed in the literature. I share this negative view of the book though I do think that it is far superior to Nagel's, 2012, Mind and Cosmos. Fodor and Piatelli at least try to engage with the technical literature on evolutionary theory while Nagel makes no attempt to meet this basic requirement. That said I still am not convinced that the empirical evidence or conceptual evidence provided by Fodor and Piatelli supports their radical conclusion. In this blog I will summarize the arguments and what Darwin got wrong and show where I think they go wrong. The book has two different parts. Part 1 is a review of biological evidence which purports to show that natural selection plays a much smaller role in biology than is admitted by proponents of Darwinian theory. To show this they review evidence from the Evo-Devo revolution in biology, internal constraints in biology, laws of form etc. In the second part of the book they give a conceptual argument which they claim shows that the theory of natural selection is in principle incapable of explaining what it purports to explain. Both parts of the book are logically independent of each other and can be assessed separately. They begin their book by comparing the theory of natural selection, TNS, with B.F. Skinner's theory of learning by operant training, OT. Fodor and Piatelli in effect argue that Skinner's theory and Darwin's theory have the same logical structure, but while nobody today believes Skinner everybody believes Darwin. They argue that since the TNS is subject to the same weakness as OT people should reject the TNS in the same way they reject OT. Before discussing their claims about TNS I want to make some quick points about their claim that OT is accepted by nobody. This is not really true, behaviorism is largely lampooned by the cognitive science community. However outside of this community it is still to some degree accepted. Behavioral techniques are very effective for helping autistic children who are having difficulties learning language. Furthermore a lot of the arguments used against behaviorism in particular those which originate from Chomsky have not stood the test of time. Firstly because Chomsky did not really understand what the claims made by behaviorists amounted to. Secondly because a lot of poverty of stimulus arguments used to discredit behaviorism have been discredited. I have discussed Chomsky and behaviorism in detail in an earlier blog so won't go into it here. I merely want to note that Fodor and Piatelli's views on Ott are really a caricature of the position, I will argue that the same is true of their views on evolutionary theory. Firstly I will make clear exactly what the analogy between Ott and TNS is for Fodor and Piatelli. The first point of comparison they make is in terms of what they call population thinking. They claim that a way to think of TNS is as a theory of how phenotypic properties of populations change over time in response to ecological variables, PG3. They define Ott in a similar way Ott is plausibly is also plausibly viewed as a black box that maps a distribution of traits in a population at a time, a creature's behavioral repertoire at that time, together with a specification of relevant environmental variables is the creature's history of reinforcement, onto a succeeding distribution of traits. They argue that the TNS and Ott have six basic untenable feature in common, one, iterativity, ET provides no bounds on the type of phenotype possible Ott provides no bounds on the variety of behavioral profiles which can be created through conditioning. 2. Environmentalism, ET and Ott abstract from endogenous variables, claiming that the phenomenon of evolution on the one hand and psychology on the other are largely the effects of environmental causes. 3. Gradualism, ET argues that new phenotypes emerge gradually, Ott argues that learning is a gradual process of stimulus-response conditioning. 4. Monotonicity, ET and Ott are one-factor theories. For ET selection does all the work. For Ott conditioning does all the work. 5. Locality, 
Both ET and OT are local processes and are insensitive to mere hypothetical contingencies. 6. Mindlessness. ET doesn't postulate God to do the work and OT doesn't postulate mind to do the work. Fodor and Piatelli argue that the evidence they provide in the two parts of their book shows that evolutionary theory is defined according to the above six principles cannot do what it purports to do. I will argue that they are simply misrepresenting evolutionary theory. There is no reason to hold evolutionary theory to principle 1, 2 or 4. The first part of Fodor and Piatelli's book is the biological argument. As I mentioned before the truth of this part is logically independent of the truth of part 2. Part 1 is divided into four chapters. The four chapters are as follows, 1. Internal constraints, what the new biology tells us, 2. Whole genomes, networks, modules and other complexities, 3. Many controns, many environments, 4. The return of the laws of form. I will now consider the evidence he puts forth in Part 1. It is important to note that the arguments in Part 1 only purport to demonstrate that NS does not play as big a role as theorists like Maynard Smith, Dawkins and Deanit think it does. This part does not make any claim that NS is an incoherent concept, that particular claim is supposedly justified in Part 2. Chapter 1, Internal Constraints, the authors begin this section with a claim that standard neo-Darwinists are environmentalists by definition. By this they mean that standard Darwinian theory thinks that changes to a phenotype are largely driven by environmental contingencies. Their primary aim in this section is to show that contemporary wet biology is telling a story of innate constraints which are ads with a neo-Darwinian story. It is worth noting that the authors they cite in this section do not agree with the use Fodor and Piatelli make of their work, Fodor and Piatelli acknowledge this point. Furthermore, most neo-Darwinians would deny that they are environmentalists in Fodor and Piatelli's sense. So they would argue that Fodor and Piatelli are attacking a straw man. To this Fodor and Piatelli reply by citing a variety of neo-Darwinians who do indeed seem to support strict environmentalism. Bearing all of this in mind let's now review the evidence they cite. The first thing they cite is the concept of unidimensionality. Unidimensionality is supposedly standard story in the neo-Darwinian theory. On this picture NS plays the primary role in the theory of evolution, the role of internal sources of variance, and internal constraints is said to play only a marginal role. To prove this point they cite Ernest Maya's book Animal Species and Evolution as an example of such ultra-selectionist attitudes. Fodor and Piatelli claim that discussions of the evolution of the eye nicely illustrates the neo-Darwinian emphasis on NS as the primary source of design in species. It was claimed by most neo-Darwinian theorists, that the evolution of the eye emerged several times independently and convergently across species. In his Darwin's Dangerous Idea Dan Dennett referred to the evolution of the eye as a nice trick, something that was bound to be selected in any form it occurred in. Dawkins has made similar claims. Fodor and Piatelli pointed out that the discovery of master genes for eye development, PAX-3, PAX-2, PAX-6, and DOC, across vastly different classes and species has shown the neo-Darwinian view to be incorrect. The next topic they consider is beanbag genetics. Here they basically argue that selection for a particular gene rarely, if ever occurs, and this is because of the convoluted packing of genes and chromosomes. Their critique of beanbag genetics is a pointless because nobody believes it anyway. One of the key factors they believe counts against the neo-Darwinian view is the existence of internal constraints and filters. The discussion of internal constraints and filters involves an appeal to results in the Evo-Devo revolution. 
Again it is worth noting that most people working in Evo Devo consider themselves a part of Neo-Darwinianism and would not accept the conclusions drawn from their work by Fodor and Piatelli. According to Fodor and Piatelli, the standard Neo-Darwinian picture abstracts away from the all effects of development on visible traits, P.27. They stress that the Evo Devo revolution shows that this development not only cannot be abstracted away from, it is key to the process of evolution. They argue that it has been shown in the lab, 1. Phenotypic convergence is, more often than not the result of developmental constraints, 2. Also they cite the fact that experimental evidence, Runshack in 2001, has shown that terminal forms can differ in massive ways as a result of slight variations in the regulation of the same gene complexes slash or the timing activation of such complexes, page 30. This shows that contrary to Neo-Darwin claims evolution is not primarily driven by exogenous factors but by internal developmental constraints. They spend the rest of the chapter outlining a series of facts which they claim further develop their point. Throughout section 1 they are merely attacking a straw man, because most evolutionary theorists do not deny what they are claiming. Though it is true that a lot of pop science is guilty of making claims of the type they critique. In chapter 2 and 3 Fodor and Piatelli argued that there are internal constraints which limit the importance of selection, and they considered how if at all selection could operate given these limits. They claimed that in response to the evidence reviewed in chapters 2 and 3 Neo-Darwinists have expanded its scope and invoked other kinds of natural selection. This chapter is an attempt to provide more problems for Neo-Darwinianism. The first problem they consider is the phenomenon of adaptation without selection, Fodor and Piatelli summarize the point as follows. The point to keep your eye on is this, it is possible to imagine series of alternatives to the traditional Darwinian consensus that evolution is primarily a gradualistic process in which small phenotypic changes generated at random are then filtered by environmental constraints. This view is seriously defective if, as we suppose, the putative random varietons are in fact highly constrained by the internal structures of evolving organisms. Perhaps it goes without saying that if this internalist story is true, then less work is left for appeals to natural selection to do. What Darwin got wrong p. 54. They provide eight pieces of evidence which they think support their conclusion. 1. Gene regulatory networks, building from the work of E.H. Davidson, 2006, they argue that gene regulatory networks are at work in the development of the organism. These gene regulatory networks are modular in nature, in other words they form compact units of interaction which are separate from other similar units. The important point about these regulatory networks is that they are supposedly responsible for the development of the bodily structures of animals. This happens because large effect mutations acting on conserved core pathways of development. They claim that this process makes it virtually impossible to argue that particular isolated traits are selected for. 2. Entrenchment they claim that this acts as an engine of development and evolutionary change and as a constraint, Ibid p.43. Some evolutionary factors may be highly conserved and protected against change. They offer very little evidence of their views at this point merely a promissory note to develop the point in the next chapter. 3. Robustness, this is the persistence of a trait of an organism despite developmental noise, environmental change or genetic change. This robustness is important for the stability of phenotypic change despite genetic and non-genetic variation. They cite the work of Wagner, 2008, which claims that it is only the additive component of genetic variation which responds to selection. Fodor and Piatelli argue this fact should make people wary of accepting the neo-Darwinian view that selection is the primary vehicle of phenotypic variation. 
Four our master genes are our masters, they make the now well-established point that many genes are indissociably controlled the same master gene. Therefore if a mutation affects a master gene, and is viable, it will affect all of the genes the master gene controls as well. They link this to Gould's famous paper on spandrels. They briefly discuss how the evolution of language may not be explicable in terms of a simple adaptive story in terms of selection for communication. Using facts about master genes they argue that language may have been a freerider, which was selected because of mutation in the master gene ITX. They claim that this story is not even considered because of allegiance to an ultra-adaptationist model. I do not agree with this claim there has been ample debates on this topic. See Hauser, Fitch and Chomsey 2005 and Reply by Jackendoff and Pinker 2006. However evaluating this debate would take a long discussion of linguistics which is beyond the scope of this discussion. They go on to further discuss things like developmental modules, coordination, morphogenetic explosions, plasticity and the, non-transitivity, of fitness. All of these facts are well known in the literature and it is unclear to me at least why they believe these facts pose a major problem for evolutionary theory. They do pose a problem for the caricature of evolutionary theory they present at the beginning of their book but not for evolutionary theory as it is actually practiced. They also consider laws of form as an argument against the standard neo-Darwinian story. They discuss the work of thinkers like Stuart Kaufman, Stuart Newman, and Lewis Wolpert who have all discussed the important topic of laws of form and self-organization. Fodor emphasizes how this research shows that we need to discover what forms are possible for an organism to take before we attack the question of how selection can act on these possible forms. These constraints on possible forms are shown in things like non-genomic nativism discussed by people like Cherniak. Cherniak details computational constraints on brain anatomy which he claims are derived from physics for free, hence we do not need natural selection to explain some of the structure of the brain. Fodor and Piatelli also discuss the work of James Martin who has detailed physical constraints on possible animal locomotion. Their discussion of laws of form is extremely interesting but again it is hard to see that it really poses any problem for the standard neo-Darwinian picture. There really is nobody, and I mean nobody who denies that there are physical constraints at work in evolutionary theory. They are correct to note that pop evolutionary writers sometimes ignore these physical constraints and focus entirely on selection. So, if Fodor and Piatelli were merely warning against this type of mistake, then their point would be well made, but it should be obvious that their arguments do not have any bearing on neo-Darwinian theory when construed correctly. As can be seen by my discussion of part 1 of their book they offer some interesting empirical research which does indeed cast doubt on some extremely weak pop evolutionary theory, however it leaves actual neo-Darwinism untouched. Ultimately part 1 of their book can be dismissed as a largely successful attack on a straw man. The second part of what Darwin got wrong is much more controversial in this part they attack natural selection arguing that it is an incoherent concept. Their argument in part 2 is a conceptual argument and has drawn a lot of criticism from both philosophers and scientists. Even Tom Nagel who largely agrees with Fodor and Piatelli's argument in part 1 of the book thinks that part 2 is a bad argument. So Fodor and Piatelli cannot even rely on Nagel who thinks there is a lot wrong with the neo-Darwinian materialism to support their more radical claims. I am not very impressed with their argument in part 2 of the book, I will firstly summarize it before offering some criticisms. Their argument centers on the distinction between selection and selection for. If an organism has two traits T1 and T2 which are coextensive, for example, T1 is the heart pumping blood and T2 is the heart making thump thump noises, 
anytime T1 is selected T2 will be selected as well. We as theorists know that it is obviously the heart pumping blood which is selected and not the thump thump sound. The thump thump sound is merely a free rider and isn't the object of selection. Fodor and Piatelli note that since the traits are coextensive then there is nothing mother nature can do to distinguish between them. From this fact they draw the conclusion that selection for does not occur. They argue that only way such selection for could occur is if mother nature has a mechanism which it can use to distinguish between such coextensive traits. Since there is no plausible account of such a mechanism they argue that we must conclude that selection for does not occur. The standard reply to this argument is one of incredulity. It is perfectly true that mother nature does not select for trait X over trait Y, firstly there is obviously no such thing as mother nature, secondly selection for is more of an explanatory heuristic than something we expect to find in nature. It is evolution 101 that selection against is what occurs not selection for, random mutations which don't have survival value will not be passed on to the next generation, so in this sense are selected against, whatever isn't selected against we sometimes describe as a trait which has been selected for. The point is we do not need the selection for concept to make sense of evolutionary history, selection against is enough, we can describe this process well enough using statistical models of what traits tend to survive in what environment. To this Fodor and Piatelli would reply that the concept of selection for is used all of the time in evolutionary theory, in particular by evolutionary psychologists. In an appendix at the end of what Darwin got wrong they provide 28 quotes from 14 different philosophers and evolutionary psychologists who are appealing to selection for despite the fact that Fodor and Piatelli think they have shown that the concept does not do any explanatory work. It is worth stressing again Fodor and Piatelli are not denying that there is a fact of the matter as to whether the heart pumping blood, or the heart making thump thump noises is selected. Rather they are merely asserting that since we have no plausible mechanism that mother nature can use to select for trait 1 as opposed to trait 2 then evolutionary theory is currently conceived cannot explain what it purports to explain. They think that evolutionary theory is really just a form of historical explanation. This is nothing wrong with historical explanations per se. Calling something a historical explanation doesn't amount to a claim that the subject matter of evolutionary theory cannot give us true theories. In historical studies we can discover facts of the matter about who the first president of America was, what year did the French Revolution occur and etc. Likewise Fodor and Piatelli argue that we can discover facts of the matter about the genealogy of the species using naturalistic observations and historical explanations. They just believe that the theory of natural selection is not a strong enough tool to support the type of nomological explanations typically found in the natural sciences. It is really difficult to know what to make of Fodor and Piatelli's claims on selection for. It seems to amount to nothing more than pointless hair-splitting. All of the theorists whom they quote from do indeed use selection for in their various different theories. However their views can be trivially redescribed in terms of selection against and therefore avoid the criticisms which Fodor and Piatelli bring to bear. Furthermore, Fodor and Piatelli's distinction between historical sciences and the hard sciences is a bit antiquated and may have made sense a hundred years ago but science is much more pragmatic and problem-based these days and their distinction has little relevance that I can see. Overall, I think that all their book did, was point out some oversimplifications which are given in some popular evolutionary explanations, but they have not really done any damage to evolutionary theory properly conceived as far as I can see. I will return to how Fodor's incorrect view on the nature of the mind lead him to his strange views on evolutionary theory when I discuss how methodological dualism applied to the mind is infecting Nagel, Fodor and Plantinga in their thinking on evolutionary theory in the fourth blog of this series.